Welcome to Idaho Speakeasy. I'm Mike Turner with Phil Mount, and we're on a mission to uncover and share the stories of Idaho's finest entrepreneurs, community leaders, local icons, and those impacting our community. Today in the Speakeasy, we have Jim Thomas. He's the head women's soccer coach at Boise State University. Welcome to the Speakeasy, Jim. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering which one of those categories I'm going to fall under right now. <laughs> that's the, we'll, well, let's we'll find, find out. out by the end of this. <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> so, and you know, you got, you know, obviously you're. It's a, it's a, it's an awesome position you have over there. Um, you're doing great things. We keep hearing all this great stuff. I want to get into that, but also during this time that we have to, with you today. Um, I, I've heard that you've had some kind of unique coaching styles and philosophies that you, you bring to you this job as the head coach at Boise State uh, University's uh, soccer, women's soccer. And I'd love to get into that as well. Sure. Um, uh, but first off, you know, I can see people are probably going to recognize you have an accent. So, Good, like, at least yeah, I still got it. Yeah, right. So, um, so tell us, you know, what's, what's your background? Well, I was born originally in Wales. I didn't live there for very long, about 18 months. I moved down to the south of England um, and kind of moved across the coast from uh, east, sorry, from west to east. Uh, ended up in a town called Littlehampton, which was a little Hampton. Um, lovely little sleep, sleepy seaside town. Um, kind of the small English version of Coney Island with tiny little Ferris wheels rather than big ones. Um, soccer's huge over there, so we all grew it, played play, Played it growing up and played it on the playground, played it at uh, lunch times. You know, it was a, a thing that was a thread in the community, to be honest. Um, and as you get older and you're going down the pub for a pint, you're, you're talking about the games over the weekend there as well. So it's it's really something that you grow up with. And for me, my, my playing career was... I don't know. It was pretty predictable pretty quickly. Um, I was a big guy young, which is nail in the coffin for anyone with any talent. So uh, <laughs> I was big for a bit and then everyone caught up and then it became about skill. And uh, I very quickly moved into the, the teaching side of things. My mum was a teacher growing up in England. So I knew pretty early at about the age of 14, 15, that soccer wasn't going to be something that was a profession. Uh, yet I was surrounded by a lot of friends that were moving in that direction so it quickly became something that was something I loved and enjoyed but if I was going to have a career in it it would be more in the teaching area so as I went through my degree uh, I have a sports psychology degree it was more about teaching athletics and helping people grow through uh, physical endeavor Um, and as I was going through that I had this little thing with the states I don't know what it was I think I just watched too many movies Yeah. but there was just these (laughs) movies that were like man this country this place um, that I was always drawn to it for a person that just wanted a chance to work really hard at something and do well at it and be rewarded for that I think largely that comes from my mum, who again was a teacher, she raised four of us essentially on our own. We had dads that came and, uh, and went, two of them, um, but the, the stable was my mum. And she raised us all on this teaching salary. And I always saw her grind away and um, take over the responsibility for different departments within the school and all these kind of things. And it never really changed a lot. She was never really rewarded for all these things she was doing, helping kids that were in trouble and going the extra mile to help kids get through school and and move on to the next level. And I think that stuck with me. That's the only real place I know it came from that I just wanted to go to a place where I felt like I could be rewarded for the work that I was doing. Didn't really feel like I was going to get that back home. 
And then you watch a bunch of Rambo and Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and it draws you in. I want to go Terribly. to these cool places, <laughs> yeah. you know. <clears throat> so uh, I had the opportunity to come over and work as a youth uh, coach in su- summer camps, you know, these British soccer camps. You bring over the, the young English dude with a far thicker accent than I had <laughs> have now, and he teaches the local kids in the community that maybe don't have access to the game. Uh, I traveled around um, a number of different places in the Midwest. We were stationed out at Kansas. And within that first week, um, as corny as it sounds for radio, this is a true story. <laughs> uh, I walked into the headquarters of that company and saw a girl sitting in a conference room, much like the office we're sitting in right now with a big window that you can walk past. <laughs> and I, I fell over. Um, so it was like a weak knee moment. I fell into the cubicle of our regional director and just said, I, I have to know this woman. Who is it? Um, fast forward 20 years later, she's my wife of 16 years. We have two children together and here we are in Boise, Idaho. So uh, it was a summer romance that extended on and on. And uh, I think initially moving to the country was about trying to find a way to keep my love for her and that relationship alive. Being on different continents makes that pretty difficult. Um, So we were motivated with that and uh, ultimately ended up in the Seattle area, which is a huge soccer community. Didn't know at the time. Almost ended up in Omaha, Nebraska, of all Mm. places, quite Mm. opposite to Seattle. Um, My wife uh, was getting her fashion designer degree at the time. So she was able to continue that at the Art Institute of Seattle. I was able to begin my uh, youth coaching career and try and build my name in the States. Uh, did so and worked my way up through kind of a traditional high school to community college and ultimately to the assistance position at the University of Washington. My wife at the time did the same thing. She was actually the head designer for BP or Brass Plum at Nordstrom for 10 years. So she worked up through her fashion designing career as I did mine. And ultimately, kiddos got in the way of her career, continuing without taking a little break. And at the same time, Boise State became available. And it was it was kind of a beautiful coming together when you're trying to push your career on, but also build a family. How do you do that anymore mm-hmm. uh, with the way cities have become and lifestyles are and money? Um, this was kind of the perfect coming together of a, a wonderful community that we could feel safe with our kids and slow down the pace enough to actually be there for our kids. Where, and then me continue on this this journey of, of coaching. So short yeah. story. Yeah. It is. Well, yeah. yeah. So you've been at Boise State since, what, 2013? Yeah, that was my first season. So six okay. seasons now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how's it, how's it going? It's going well. It's been a journey. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I think anything that's worth... Uh, really pushing towards is a journey like that. I heard a funny quote on social media earlier in the week that uh, you couldn't climb a mountain if it was smooth. So <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. That's about where we're at. Um, you know, whenever you take over somebody else's project, it's like moving into a house. You know, the color of the walls is wonderful to them, and you just might not like eggshell. So yeah. what do you do? Uh, you have to change the color of the walls. So for us, I think when we came in, we were buoyed initially by a very motivated group of senior players that really wanted to prove that this was a correct thing to do to change the coaching staff. And we have a wonderful first year. And then the real work begins uh, because the fact of the matter was we just didn't like the color of the walls. So um, rebuilding a program where recruiting is two to three years out and really for a player to get everything in order you're looking at them being a junior at earliest really so you've got this four to five year process where you're going to be battling things that hopefully you won't battle long term uh, but on the front end you will so i think we've been going through that process and some of these stories you've heard about my coaching methodologies are probably born out of 
us trying to really identify what the issues truly were and what is a pragmatic way about going to build them in the in the vision that we had for it. So where we sit now is it's been the most successful six years in the program. Um, we hold one, two, and three for the best years that the program has ever had in 20 years. And uh, we are the current reigning regular season Mountain West champions. So, you know, it's it's found success. It's been phenomenal. But I think the things that we really hold our, you know, our hat on or, you know, really grasp onto that are our successes are a little bit away from that and, and to bigger things for these young women. Yeah. So tell us about the ethos uh, that you, you use in the recruiting process. Okay. that's kind of I mean isn't that that's how you build your team right? it is and I think that's probably the first wall color we found where the (laughs) it was wrong Um, (laughs) you can't you can't turn people into something you want without them wanting to be the thing that you're driving towards so you really have to surround yourself if you want to be successful in anything you have to surround yourself by like-minded people whose core values their ethics are moving in the same direction. They don't have to be the same. In fact, it's better if they're not all exactly the same. But you've got to have these common core values that you can all center around. So when you choose a direction, it's a direction that people can buy into, people can believe in. And that's just the first step. What you're really looking for is for them to take those core values and make them more than you can imagine as the head coach. If it's it's always coming from you, uh, the analogy we would use is that you're you're now pulling the ship. Uh, The trick is to turn the engine on the ship on so you don't have to pull anything. Uh, that, That was really the ethos for us. When we look at a player, anyone on the planet can walk on and say, well, that's an athletic person. And our sport is on a huge field. We were talking about this off air. It's, it's a huge field that you have to run around on for a long, long period of time. And no one ever gives you a break. So if you're athletic, it works. Um, but that stuff is, is not rocket science. To see if someone is effective in the game technically or tactically, you know, I could sit down with you guys over dinner and we could get pretty darn close pretty quickly. Uh, they're physical markers that we we have a checklist for. Um, we work down that, do they or don't they? And we get through that part of the recruiting process very quickly, very quickly. The ethos part is the part that takes us anywhere between 6 to 18 months. It's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of researching. And it's generally around character. Uh, we spend a lot of time getting to know these athletes as people and trying to figure out whether as a person they're moral code who they are as a person uh, is really going to take what I give you as a coach and my staff and Ed Max give you as a support staff and make it more than it ever was and it can't just be that we give you what we give you and you take it and that's all you do otherwise you're a robot and as I talked about my playing career was over when I was 14 15 so I need these guys to be more than I ever was (laughs) as a player Um, and that's the fun part of coaching Uh, now it's becoming this living breathing thing that you can have that's your own journey and we can be a part of it as opposed to uh, this is surefire steadfast you must do this otherwise it won't work that's a pretty boring black and white deal as is a lot more of a living breathing thing so we look for those kind of people uh, they're typically people that are really invested in their academics 
trying to strive for something else because it's going to mirror the way we coach them. Mm -hmm. Trying to invest in their communities and reaching out to something bigger or better than just the little bubble that they live in. So we've got these kind of these things that we try and prod away at when we get to know them. We spend time, we, we watch them warm up or or how they carry their bag to the to the sideline of their youth game, you know, is it like walking there, dumping their bag? Is the bag open? Uh, is their uniform untucked? Or do they care about these things? Have they picked up the bag of the person that did throw it down? You know, what do they act like when they lose? And we want to tr truly find out who that person is on and off the park because those are the people that are going to promote essentially what are concepts and make them so much more. Mm. Awesome. We're, we're speaking with Jim Thomas. He's the, uh, the head coach for BSU Women's Soccer. And so, Jim, okay, so uh, you came in about six years ago, and uh, uh, you said you got to change the color of the walls of the house. <laughs> Which we literally did. Right. It okay. was literally eggshell, and okay. now it's blue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so now, now you're a number of years in. Mm -hmm. what do you, what's your biggest challenge today? Yeah, as you've, have you've kind of gotten a little bit more settled into – you know the direction you wanted to head, or what you, the mountain you were climbing. Sure. Um, what's what's today your your biggest hurdle? I think the we actually have a an exercise we do um, that I'm a I'm a closet writer. Um, I have written poems, songs, books. I wrote a book for my family um, over the passing of my wife's grandmother. They asked me to write this thing. So I've got this, this little thing I like to, I do, to do to kind of balance out my life. So if you were a player underneath me, you wouldn't just get organizationary emails. They kind of joke about it. Everything's a riddle or a story. <laughs> and, uh, so I try and, uh, try and give things some, some context. So we have this thing um, where a gentleman goes past a wall and uh, every day he tries to climb the wall. And at every different season, he tries to build a different box in order to get up to the top of the wall and climb over the top of it. It's this big, long thing. And by the end of it, he gets to the top of the wall. It requires the assistance of others, a combination of all of these things that he's become over his journey of trying to overcome this wall. And what did he see at the top of the wall? He saw a bunch more walls. So for us, I think what we had at the start was... We have this big wall that's in front of us. This program is broken. Our academics are not as good. We don't have a great image within the community. We're making errors in our social decision-making. We're not promoting our athletes into the correct um, degrees uh, in order to have the most opportunities and really strive for the life that they want to have for their families. Um, so we needed to fix that first. This was a big cultural overhaul that took us a good three and a half to four years and involved so many things I could fill up the rest of your afternoon on this on this stuff. It was a big deal for us, one that we really put a lot of thought into and research into and pragmatically went about implementing over the course of these three to four years. At the end of it, we got to this place where what we were currently doing, this, this cultural overhaul, wasn't relevant anymore um, because we weren't any, any of those issues that we had, the entitlement stamp that the young people in our community get today, I have a different take on that. I don't believe in entitlement. I think it's something completely different. But we had to get to that point where we could understand that fully and actually educate our young people on what it was and why people were judging and branding them that way. How do we then educate them and give them time to grow away from that judgment? Now we're looking at a group of people that the last thing you would say is they're entitled. These guys are pulling 60 to 70 hour weeks, 
pulling jobs, as well as 20 plus hours of schooling, uh, as well as the 10 to 15 hours worth of training, and then all of the community service that we get them to do. These guys aren't socially loafing here. These guys are pulling out every piece of this community that it, they can grab. So the, the model that we had didn't make any sense anymore. It wasn't relevant to the people that we were there. So we're now moving away from that and implementing what we call the Bronco Steps. We're working with um, people on upper campus at Boise State. A guy called Jeremiah Sheehan has become my coach um, in coaching me through this. And he does this for uh, a number of different entities on upper campus. Um, but what we're trying to do now is create a framework um, to enable people to bounce through this experience their own way but know that they are moving towards something controllable. So I think before we had a much more rigid stance on this thing because we needed to get where we needed to get. Uh, now, the way we, we liken it, another one of my little stories, um, is we, have an, uh, we, think we do this thing called What Do You See? And it's a picture of an alleyway. Uh, it's really horrible, gross alleyway, graffiti everywhere, trash everywhere. Um, and then we show them a picture of a beautiful open field, wonderful rolling hills. And we talk them through what they see, where are they going in each of these two pictures? And all of them love the rolling hills and none of them know where they're going, how to get there, whether they're lost, when would they turn around, what would, there's no structure to it. In the alleyway, as gross as it is, you know, you're going to the other end of the alleyway. You'll know that you'll turn around if you don't like where you are at the end of it. You'll know what's at the end of the alleyway because you can look both ways. Everything is really clear. So we, we build them towards understanding that these boundaries that we have within their athletic and academic experience are key. No boundaries while you think you want freedom isn't good. And then we ask them how they're going to go through it. And that's what we're working on currently. We don't want them to walk through the alleyway. There's no life in that. We don't want them to run. They'll miss it. We want them to parkour. We want them to free run. We want them to backflip, bounce off the walls, climb up the railings, jump off of there, paint their own graffiti, make your own stamp on the alleyway that you're walking down. If we do that, then we enable people from all different socio and economical backgrounds, all different religious beliefs, all different creeds, all different ages to come in and create an experience that will benefit Boise, Boise State and Boise State Soccer. So we've broadened our scope of influence by doing that. Uh, it takes some work to then bring that back together at the end. But I think when you pick up the people with the moral and ethical code to go through this kind of thing, um, that's actually done for you a lot more than you think as a coach you're always worried about it and then you realize that stuff has actually been tied together by the path you've gone through and ironically uh, i found this out on the back end uh, jeremiah uh, the coach that i was telling you about my coach uh, worked very very closely with coach pete and when i proposed this whole thing to him the three to four year deal and then we when we started proposing the next uh, steps within this that any person could go through not just a team that was in dire straits. He was shocked at how similar it was to what daily Coach Pete went through when they talk about uh, OKGs kind of uh, guys. Yep, and yeah. how they build people from the recruiting standpoint and then what they have them community service-wise, morally and ethically do, and how that translates to the most winning program in football history. So I had no idea because I he left ironically to Washington where I came from <laughs> the year I left Washington to come here so we passed literally on the freeway <laughs> and exchanging uh, jobs but uh, or locations of jobs but um, uh, that was happenstance but it was definitely 
uh, a boost of confidence for me that we're going down the right path. He's had that kind of success. Yeah. Well, how did you even develop it? I mean, like, did you were you learning from others? Did you did you pick up some other from other coaches or see some other programs? Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Not just coaches. No. Yeah. Um, you know, I think where it all began was we wanted to understand our people better. Uh, I think if you're going to lead people, you you need to understand them. You need to know who, what they are, what motivates them, and uh, I think there was this this huge disconnect there that they had a defensive response to stuff their body language their the way that they carried themselves wasn't indicative of who they are it was a defensive response to how they were being judged and you can't get away from it uh, if you look on social media everything's airbrushed everybody's beautiful uh, social media shows you the five best percent of anyone's life <laughs> they never show you the really bad stuff um, or the normal stuff it's it's kind of polarizing this thing mm -hmm. and that's how they live yet 20 years ago there wasn't a computer or 30 years ago when i grew up we didn't have a cell phone i used the first computer in a computer lab in high school growing up so my world was tiny theirs was massive the social constraints and stresses that they have are so far more than what i ever had to experience yet i'm sitting here as a 40 year old saying to you you need to do be in and experience these things it's not fair um, we we try to explain to them how this evolution of technology has actually changed their lives more than it will change any others lives the expansion of technology in the last 20 years for these guys has been more so than any other time in history and likely will be more than any other future jump that we'll make right. so we have to research that we had to learn. I didn't know that as a soccer coach. I'm a soccer coach. <laughs> right. um, we had to learn how different communities in different parts of the world were dealing with what was being perceived as entitled. And then we had to take, and this took three or four months of reading everything from the Atlantic to um, British uh, medical journals. My brother is a GP back in England, so I utilized him as a resource, reading sports science stuff, reading social media stuff. We read a lot on what's going on down in um, Palo Alto and the difficulties that they're having in schools with the stress that's being put on a grade um, and what the life is that they're actually living. So from everything from, uh, sad to say it, but the, the suicide rates that are going on in Palo Alto to why in England are they creating um, ungoverned playgrounds where kids can literally create fire if they want to? Why is all this happening? Why is it no longer that you will let the kid walk down the street to pick up the mail from the mailbox, go to the park on their own? So this is the world that they lived in that's not the same as the one that we lived in. And when I turned up to school with a bad outfit on for the day, it lived for the day and then it died that day. It didn't get posted and then retweeted and lived for months. So this is the group that we're dealing with. We don't understand them. We don't get them. Yeah. And the problem for you guys' generation with mine and the ones that they're going to interact with beyond that is that we don't actually know what we're saying to them when we say it. We don't know how our words and actions are perceived by this group. Similarly, they have no idea how they're being perceived by our generations. This isn't an entitlement thing, it's a communication disconnect. The way that they speak and deal with one another is very different to the way we want to. Somewhere in the middle, we have to re-educate one another how to communicate to one another. That's exactly what we did. We had players um, communicate with their grandparents 
on what they knew about social media. They had to call someone over the age of 70 years old and ask them a question on what a social media site was. It was remarkable. The, the younger players were more shocked by the fact that all of their grandparents knew exactly what Instagram, Facebook, Twitter was than the, the fact that they didn't know how important it was to um, stand up when someone joins the table, mm -hmm. to hold a door open for mm -hmm. someone, whether you know it or not, uh, to wait to let someone get out of the elevator before you try and get on it. Um, very simple things that you and I would make an instant snap judgment on. They're making judgments on whether we do or do not know what their social media life is like. To, in our research, which is very anecdotal and small in cohort, the older generations were actually making a dance site more effort to come back down to the younger generations than the youngers were to the oldest. But they had no idea where they were going. As soon as we started to show them this stuff, it, was, it wasn't eye-opening to them. It was a breath, breath of fresh air. It was something that had been confusing, that they had no answer to, that now they had a very simple path to. And all of that stuff really falls into a common sense once you've got one or two of them the third, the fourth, and the fifth, even though no one told you, you can kind of figure it out. I left the room. I turned the light off. Why did you turn the light off? Well, there's no one in there. It doesn't need to be on. Now you're saving electricity and doing a respectful thing. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I left the TV on, the door was open, I didn't really care. So those actions are perceived very, very differently by our different generations. And we had to communicate that to them. We had to try and find a way to diffuse this lack of communication and figure out a new pathway for us all to communicate to one another. We hit a snag in the fact that Boise is, I didn't know this when I moved here, I knew it was great, but this is a bubble. Um, it's very much a protected part of America where you have a lot of the trimmings of big cities and uh, the growth of this country, but you are not 45 minutes to an hour in traffic. You are not paying $750,000 for a 700-square-foot apartment. You can live here and you can have everything that you ever want and you really don't want for anything else, yet you are living right on the cusp of Lucky Peak and all these wonderful places mm -hmm. like Bogus Basin where you can go skiing. So it's a little bit of a utopia here. That was difficult for us to get them out of that and realize that's not actually the real world that's not the rest let's, of the world that's right let's go do the real world then so america became a america became a restriction for us and being english i knew it that's why i came here <laughs> i wanted to get away from that so we actually uh raised money uh, which they had to raise themselves they raised it in two different ways they didn't just raise money money a lot of these guys come from enough money to be able to pay for this themselves so that would have been a moot point for us they had to raise it by uh social awareness points or community service points where we worked in battery shelters and uh, homeless shelters. Uh, we gave back to communi communities for free in, in schools where we tried to make them understand before they went what it is they truly have. And then we went about educating them about a simple secondary culture, not an impoverished one, just mm -hmm. a different one. Um, so obviously the Basque community here is so huge. Mm -hmm. It made perfect sense. One of our assistant coaches, Maite Zabala, who was Basque or is Basque. Um, so it tied in with some of the access we had to the Basque community here. And then we took them to the Basque country um, and Catalonia for a 10 day trip. So mm -hmm. we immersed ourselves in language, in food, mm -hmm. uh, but we also immersed ourselves in culture, history, and some of the things that maybe differentiate Europe to America and why America, regardless of what you may or may not think of it currently, you can stand what you like. It's still the most advanced 
best place to live in the world. I mean, it's you can argue your side of it, but mm -hmm. if you looked at the broad picture, it's leading the world. So if you have a person from that community with those expectations, brought up with that, that's their DNA, mm -hmm. just to show them the beauty of a three-hour meal. This was one of the biggest things right. our, our kids struggle with. Yeah, sit down now. And you're going to have a three-hour meal. And what are we going to do for three hours? Right. Watch this. Mm -hmm. And seven courses later, your stomach's hurting through laughter. Your mm -hmm. jaw is tired through talking. <laughs> you don't want to stop. And there's not been a screen, a tweet. Mm -hmm. um, there's an engagement in there. Then we turn around to him and said, that's what you're missing. When we talked about that community, that communication discrepancy, that's where it was. That thing that you just did there that you loved, you didn't even know you loved it, but you loved that, right? Oh, gosh, I wish we could do that all the time. You can. And that's the bridge that we have to, to take towards where we are and where we need to be. So you, when you start going down these kind of theoretical pathways, that's at that point where you have to start getting creative how you're going to bring it out because it's just not, hey, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. You have to live it. You have to find examples of it. You have to expose them to it. Uh, my players will laugh at me when I say this, but it has to have tangible action. It's like a broken record. If, if it doesn't have tangible action in our world, it doesn't count. I don't care what you say. Um, I care what you do. I don't care if you try. Everybody tries. I care what you do. Um, so how you actually act is how we define who we are by what we actually do. Uh, so everything we did had to be a tangible action. We can't just tell them it now or have a conversation about it. We had to go and live it. We had to go and do it. We had to go and eat it. We had to go and make it. Um, we had to break it. So um, that's where some of these maybe more unique things have <laughs> been born out of because we wanted to make everything a visceral thing that they experienced. And I do think that regardless of generation, that's something that everybody can grab, the emotions you feel from something that you do. Your approach is fascinating to me <laughs> uh, because you I feel like you've thought about it. So, you know, you it's not just like, oh, let's just try this one tactic. This seems like it's been, uh, it's much more than that. This is more like a religion in the sense of, of how deep you've gone with like trying to make it all encompassing. Well, it's like a whole person approach, right? Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah I think that's the idea though. If you, if you want to do anything good, you've got to consider all of the angles on it. And I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you why. I mean, it wasn't working. Okay. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think you've got to have a reason. We came in here, we won 13 games my first year. Um, if you were to ask any of my former uh, players while I was an assistant at the University of Washington, they'd have told you he's tough, uh, demanding, authoritarian. Uh, he will make you the fittest person you've ever been. Uh, I kind <laughs> of lived around that. Um, I've grown up in that world. My brother was a British powerlifting champion. We've oh, had wow. physical training be a part of our lives growing up, and he's my best friend. So no matter what he did, I tried to copy it. But and that kind of emulated into the way that I wanted to um, be as a coach or who yeah. I wanted to emulate as a coach. And So I come to Boise. I try that for a year. It works, and I think, awesome. This whole plan that I had is going to continue to be great. Let's keep doing it. And then we won seven games. I think we won six, you know, nine games, seven games. And this thing was not going, you, you have 20 games to win. So nine yeah. and seven is not good. Um, and I think worse internally, you know, it was a low point for me because the idea of coaching, the sport, being around the players, developing young people just was no longer 
it was no longer grabbing me. It wasn't working. And so there was a lot of personal reflection that needed to go on. Should I keep doing this? Is this right? Um, am I the right person for these people? And ultimately, I decided I wasn't. I decided that that person that was needs to go away and a new person needs to come along uh, to give these guys what they need. Can I be that? Well, I can do but try. And I asked my players to try everything that we have a term, jump. I asked them to jump at everything I give them. So without knowing what the landing looks like, I probably should do the same myself. So that's where it all came out of. It wasn't just this... Um, I don't know, read a bunch of books and saw a bunch of videos and decided, hey, I'm going to be this kind of guy. It was a little bit more of a survival thing, to be frank. Um, things weren't going well, and we needed to find a way to make them go well. We, we tried to ascertain where the problem was sitting, and we started to attack that problem from lots of different angles. And that kind of snowballed into, once that that Pandora's box had been opened. We couldn't really put anything back in it. So I think that's really where it came from. And, and you go down journeys like that with people and anything that you do and you have a bond with them that reaches beyond the sport. You care more for other things. And all of a sudden we found ourselves invested in those other things because they were related to our position, but because we cared so much for the players that were underneath us. Now we've got something we're fighting to protect. And um, that started to become an energy that pushed us forward to I think two and a half years ago was the real turning point um, we had gone into a non-conference season thought we had it looked fantastic but played the hardest schedule we've ever put together went one seven and one and there was a lot of questions there and I remember vividly being in uh, Seattle airport coming back from one of our trips uh, as a connecting flight back into Boise and Jess Vogel, who's a former centre-back of us, played for us for four years, started all four years. Um, we were sitting together as a group and she led the meeting before I could. And she said, just before you do anything, don't pour, pour any oil on the fire. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, it's not wrong. You don't need to add anything to this right now. It's not something you need to start getting angry and yelling. We, we don't yell. We're not yellers and screamers as coaches. We're not going to lambast you for doing things wrong. We don't just don't take that angle. And we hadn't going into that year. And that had been my MO. Whoa, the iron fist. If you don't, <laughs> if it doesn't go my way. Watch out. Um, and obviously that had not worked. So we tried to grow away from that and, I think she could sense that I was on the precipice of going back to old habits. And she, could, she just said to me, don't throw any oil on the fire. And she said it to me in front of the entire group. And it, this was an epiphonic moment for me because I realized at that point that I wasn't actually going to get them there. And I've had this, anybody that knows me is going to giggle about this. It, I have to do it. Um, I'm the guy that's going to fix it. I'm the guy that's going to do it. Sure. Um, I, I referenced earlier about pulling, um, um, whether you just turn the engine of the boat on or whether you're pulling the boat. I was the tugboat. And I would tug any size of boat and I could pull it. And that was this was my thing. And as I was growing older as a coach and older as a person, becoming a father, uh, dealing with professional failure for the first, really the first time in my, in my life, um, it hit me right there in that airport that I wasn't ever going to be able to pull them. I wasn't ever going to be able to get them there. It wasn't going to be me, and I, and I needed to put myself out of this thing. The only way we were ever going to get anywhere um, 
and ever would do is if they did it. And if they had the empowerment to do all of the things that I've theoretically or conceptually talked about, it was them that was going to have to take that and make it their own, build it into the culture that they wanted. And my job was going to be to, to counsel them through this or to guide them. And we very quickly fell into, and I'm sure everybody that's listening has seen this. There's a there's a picture if you look up Wolfpack on uh, on Google or on the internet, anywhere you want to see it, you'll see a bunch of wolves walking through the snow. And there's very different parts to a wolf pack, um, where they put who's at the front, who's in the middle, and who's at the back. And they're actually what we call um, it's. Uh, a de- the, the term is devolved leadership style. But basically what we've done is we've taken common theories of leadership and we've reversed them, we've devolved them. So the lead, it's not actually dissimilar to how some corporations work, um, but the most what you would say is the most high-ranking person is at the bottom or the least important, and the least ranking or weakest is the most important. So if you look at a wolf pack, the people that are actually leading it aren't the alphas. They're actually the weakest, the oldest, the injured. They, they set the pace. The strong fives are in the middle, and they protect the middle that's non-defined, and their job is to protect the people that are around them. And then at the back, the last on its own is the alpha. And there are actually different levels of alphas. There are alpha betas and these people all hold different roles. And this really looked like to me what I was envisioning had been taken from me as a coach. I don't have it anymore. It's not going to be me. Um, Was that I wasn't even one of the wolves. And it took me a long time to get to this point. It took me... um, a, a, a long train down the humility track to <laughs> to put myself behind the group and uh, being not that guy in the first place was a little bit more difficult. Um, but I realized I was the person holding the camera that took the shot, that I wasn't even a part of the wolf pack. And as soon as we started to explain how this was going to work to our team and we sporadically um, instigated these different parts of the group and we worked it into their technical and tactical evaluations as to where they were within this pack as well as the wolf pack analogy has been you know done to death it was really really relevant to this devolved leadership group that we had put together so we don't have captains we don't class anyone as a head coach um, we have leaders or alphas in areas um, And that goes to the players. Some of our players will actually take what you would say is a coaching role in certain areas of our team. The direction comes from them. Uh, Likewise, my staff, while I am classed as the head coach and they are the two assistant coaches, they are head coaches of certain areas and I take instruction and direction from them. So as we started to do this, and people then got through the first, this is a weird quirk. We're going to do this for a couple of weeks. This one's going away. Sure, this one's got sure. no chance of staying right. around. <laughs> and then they start, they start to realize that this is a permanent thing. Uh, and we start going through these tangible actions that are going to empower them to do it. I think that's when things truly changed to where we're at right now. Um, and the change that it's taken in the last 12 months. Uh, the group of seniors that have just taken their their last career game to the sixth penalty of the day, um, they were the architects of this thing. They were through it through four years. They were the last group that really had a bad year and built the thing up through. Um, they built this thing the way that they felt would be the best reflection of 
Boise State Athletics, Boise State University, the city of Boise. And we consider the city of Boise in everything that we do because there's an outsider now joining this community. It's all exactly the same thing. It's all synonymous. It's all part and parcel of the same heartbeat that where our university, our athletics department and the city reside is actually not just geographically the same thing. It is actually the same thing. Um, so we needed to be a reflection of all of these things. We took that into account as we as we built it, and that's why I couldn't really take any credit. I've just been holding the camera. Um, but they really have been the architects. Hmm. Tell us about the players. And, and, he- heavy, and, and you're recruiting and, and, and... They're not heavy. I should finish go. that sentence. That's yeah. a terrible thing. To- <laughs> yeah. My players, they're heavy. Um, they are heavy on Treasure Valley. Okay. Um, more so than you would think our soccer community would indicate. Uh, when I first got here, I'm a youth coach uh, coming into this country. When I first came to Boise, I realized there was a lot of people, as you had mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people playing this game. A lot of mm-hmm. people like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of opportunity for them to get high-level instruction, um, be given a pathway to what is or isn't important in development of a young player and person. So whilst being a head coach, I've actually been coaching up until this last year, I've been coaching in the youth ranks as well. Um, All of my staff are invested in that. Um, We work all the way up to the Regional Olympic Development Program, uh, which handpicks players from all 14 states on the West Coast. Um, I've actually stepped back from that to finish this this cultural step, it, it needed a lot more hands-on work for me in the last year uh, to be more present in that. Um, but up until that point, I'd invested in heavily trying to develop and prepare players to be able to play either for this university or at higher levels, knowing that that development of that internal culture would promote our school. I don't know how a school um, with soccer in its community survives without actually having homegrown players. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen that work. That's how we did it at Washington. That's how we do it here. So who are our most pivotal players? You're looking back a few years at Brooke Heidemann, was one of the most uh, high-scoring, pivotal central midfielders that we've ever had. Uh, you move on to players like Addie Stanley, who's one of those seniors that just graduating out now, Allegra Weeks. These guys grew up in the Valley, went to Rocky, went to Bora. Uh, they know the Valley. They know the people. They know what Boise State means. Uh, they know what it means to be Boise State 37 years ago, and they know what it means to be Boise State now, and they've got a great idea about what Boise State's going to be in 10 years. They, they're in that lineage. Uh, and then you go as far as Ramey Shirley. Ramey Shirley is the number one central forward in the entire country at the Division One level. She has scored more goals than anybody else. Uh, so 20 goals led the entire country. You can go UCLA, Stanford, you go down the Notre Dame, UNC. She's got more goals than all of them. And she went to Rocky Mountain and played for a local club in the Valley. Developing those players and then taking some of these concepts that we're talking about means that when I, when I talk in these terms and I empower them, I am now empowering all of that, all of that history, all of that love for this part of the country that I, I, I wasn't born here, I didn't grow up here. I can't tell you what it means to be from Boise for, and live and, and breathe the, this air for 20 years. I can't tell you that. She can. Um, so how do I get that to influence my team? I have to empower it to change the team, but I need those players here. So when we recruit locally, we recruit the best. 
number one. Uh, we're trying to win championships. That's not a lost goal here. This isn't some weird cult that we're just <laughs> kumbaya and around the bonfire. There's a lot of music and guitars played, but it's not the only thing we do. Um, we are we are performance oriented, but I think that performance has to have a relevance to culture and the growth of a human. And I need people that live and breathe in this community to help us educate what that is. And I'll tell you what, that is amazingly attractive to people in some of the hotbeds that we do go out and recruit in. Southern California is the number one recruiting hotbed in the country. Uh, we have a number of Southern California players on our team right now we will continue to do so uh, obviously the pacific northwest with its propensity towards soccer and its mm -hmm. proximity becomes a very uh, fertile breeding ground for players that are going to come here as well but I, I do think that we're in all of those different areas we're looking for the elite of the elite athletes who have tremendous technical and tactical ca uh, capacity but are maybe leaning a little bit more towards this kind of experience they're not leaning towards the cut and dry soccer academy. Uh, they are looking for something out of their athletics department. They do want to walk into Albertsons and have a 10 minute conversation with the cashier about your life, which is my visit to <laughs> Albertsons every single time I go there. I know the names of all of the cashiers. They know my kids. My boy, my oldest boy always comes shopping with me. His name's Kingsley. The first thing he does when he goes in the store, he runs off like it's a playground. And then I, I hear a, a, a chat from Nate, who's one of the guys who's a big supporter of us and works in Albertsons as well. He says he's, he's over on aisle seven. Kingsley. So I'll go over and get him, bring him back. I mean, that, that's life here. Yeah. Um, people don't get that until they come here. Um, but I tell you, people that are living in cities with over a million people with more smog than they've got clean air, they come to a place like this where they can live, breathe, be a human, have a life. Um, we need people to show them what that's like when they come on recruiting trips. So a heavy propensity towards the elite Treasure Valley athletes. And then we reach out to those soccer hotbeds that are either proximity-based or just the best of the best to bring them here. And um, the overall goal is to make sure that we're winning championships. Um, but I think if you were to ask Kurt Apsey, my boss, and uh, Christina Van Tol, my boss, they were to say the student-athlete experience is their primary goal. Uh, okay, well, that's a little bit more than we're going to run fast and kick the ball really hard. I have some work to do to create an environment like that. Yeah. We're speaking with Jim Thomas. He's the head coach of the Boise State women's soccer team. Jim, we don't have much time left. Um, I get that a lot. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> so what's, what's, what's in the future? I mean, like you've, you've, you've got a lot of groundwork here. Mm -hmm. Where are you hoping to, to take it? I mean, do you see the plan working? Do you, do you see... Do you have, you know, can yeah. you? Yeah, you know, I hope it's working. Yeah. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Um, you know, our, our academic profile now is the best that it's ever been in the history of the program. We have a cumulative GPA, team GPA, four-year cum of 3.6. Yeah, that's a win. So yeah. we're, we're successful there. We just won the regular season Mountain West Championship with more wins than the program has ever had. That's a win. Yes. Um, we just broke all of the records. More goals scored, more shutouts, uh, more consecutive wins, more home wins. You name it, we broke all the records. So I think from a from an academic standpoint and an athletic standpoint, yes, success is coming. Um, did we win the conference tournament? No. Uh, technically, we didn't lose either. We had a tie that went to penalties, but that's the annoying part of our sport. So we still have some <laughs> athletic things that we want to go and achieve. We need to get this team into the NC2A tournament and compete for a national championship. So we have some big... Is there a path for that? There is, yeah. You yeah. have to win the conference tournament. Okay. Um, we're not a two-bid league or an at-large bid league. So uh, that 
essentially we can do everything that we just did, never lose a game. And then we get into the conference tournament. If we lose one game, we're not going. So mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's an unfortunate hurdle, but it's just a hurdle. And if you ask, and again, anyone in our world, if it's a hurdle, you're supposed to jump over it anyway. That's why it's there. So not a big deal. I think what we're we're really in the evolution of now is uh, a transition of what the the makeup of our team is going to be. You lose people that have been around through a transition of very difficult and not good, built this thing in the image of all concerned, considered all concerned, and now they leave. There's a big hole there. Uh, we've spent a year implementing a new plan that is supposed to build behind that hole every year. But that, that plan is working on odd numbers as it goes. It's mm-hmm. freshmen coming in, juniors uh, taking the, the role from the seniors. So we've got two and four to fix this coming year. And then I think we'll be closer to uh, creating a program that can cycle through a culture. And if your child came in and said, I want to come and play for you, I could tell you exactly what you're going to need to do, when you're going to need to do it, and how you get to the end, what you're going to get out at the end. And this is what we're trying to create here. How do you feel about that? And if you don't like it, don't come. Uh, If you do, this is actually what we're going to expect you to do. So we're now creating an ever-evolving set of standards that anybody can meet into. So it's not it's not done. It's a few years away yet. Um, we we'll obviously, with everything that we do, we'll have an initial plan, blow it up, try again, uh, keep part of it, forget another part, and and hopefully refine this thing over the years to come. But I'm excited for people to get to know the players that we have. They're a unique group of people. Uh, they've had a unique education from the seniors that have, have just graduated. And, and I think the staff that we have now is an exciting staff that are about turning this thing from, you know, it's okay to get nine to 11 wins to back-to-back 13 win seasons. And the NC2A is right on the horizon. So I'm excited yeah. for the future. I bet I'm excited for you. Uh, we've been speaking with Jim Thomas. He's the head coach of the women's soccer team at Boise State. And uh, I've learned about tangible assets or action <laughs> and jumping. And uh, and I do identify with the kind of tugboat analogy as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I hope you everyone's got a full hour of listening to this one yeah. because I enjoyed Wolf, it. Wolfpack leadership. Yes. There you go. I took yeah. lots of notes on that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, we will repost this on the IdahoSpeakeasy.com website. Um, of course, you can find Jim. You know, he's obviously with the Boise State program um, and obviously they're doing amazing things over there. So I'm going to be tuning in more often now that I have the pleasure of meeting him and seeing what their program's doing. And uh, thank you again for making time to come in here and share your story with us. Pleasure was all mine.